0: Man, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. God is the King, King of kings, and Lord of lords. He is sovereign over all. Yeah. That's who we worship this day and every day. You know, we learned uh, Wednesday night that all of us are worshipers, everyone worships something or someone if you're not worshiping God you're worshiping yourself and we don't make good gods (laughs) we are not fit to be worshiped we are fit to worship the one true God and that is something we must always keep in mind I mean let us go before the Lord in prayer Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship the one true God. The only God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only God who is the source of the only truth. That is the truth, Lord, that is found in your word. That is the truth that is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In who Christ is and in what he has done. Father we thank you that we do have a standard of truth. And that is your word. Christ when he prayed in John 17. When he was praying for his disciples. He prayed father sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth." And father we thank you that your word. And your word alone. Is the only source of truth. Any truth that man finds or comes up with has its origins in scripture because Lord your word is where truth is found my prayer this morning for our church our church family for our church corporately is that we continue to proclaim your truth continue to live by your truth continue to study your truth continue to spread your truth to stand firm on your truth To not waver from your truth. Lord, to dig our heels in for the truth. To not be coward or bullied into lies. But, Father, to stand firm. To have courage. To be courageous in your truth. May we as a church, Lord, not bow the knee to those who wish to deny the truth of your word. May we not become fools like those who reject your word, those who reject your truth. As Paul said in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and they are those who are the God deniers. May we not become like them, Father. Lord may we be those of the truth those of your truth biblical truth help us as a church to continue in that way and as believers also Father we pray for our uh, public officials including our uh, president his cabinet his administration our uh, congressmen. Representing us in Washington D.C., we pray for public officials at the state level. Our governor, Kay Ivey and her cabinet, and the state uh, legislators and senators that represent our districts. Lord, pray for our public officials locally. Our mayors, our city councilmen, uh, our county commissioners. Lord we pray for all them authority that they may be God-fearing and recognize that they are accountable to you for each decision and act. We pray Lord that they may be granted wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Lord we pray that they may be presented with the gospel and a living Christian witness. Lord we pray that uh, those who are unsaved that they may be drawn, to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and if they're born again that they may be strengthened and encouraged in their faith to be able to live out their Christian faith in the midst of a terrible culture and environment in Washington and in Montgomery and in our local city halls. We pray Lord that they recognize their own inadequacy and that they pray and seek your will for legislations and other things that they propose to be passed into law. We pray, Lord, that they be convicted of sin, transgressions, and iniquity. We pray, Lord, lastly, that they may heed their consciences, that they may confess their sins, and repent, turn from their sins. That is what we pray, Lord, for all of our public officials from the White House down to our local magistrates. Lord, I pray that you may answer that prayer. Lord, we pray also for our uh, sister churches, Anson Bible Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship. Bless all of the pastors, our men who are leading the flock, shepherding the flock. Lord you help us that you shepherd us that you guide us in leading our churches God, all of us who are laboring in the ministry of the gospel that we continue to to do so to be good stewards over the message of the gospel. We pray for all the parishioners in our churches Lord that they may grow in grace through the ministry of the word through the the serving of the flock by their leaders and that each member in our uh, Constituent churches that we love, honor, and serve each other as members of the body of Christ. Just strengthen us, Lord, all in our faith and our walk with you. Strengthen all the brethren who are leading our churches. Lord, I pray uh, for false churches, false preachers. Pray against them, Father, that you may call them to repentance. A lot of false churches in our area preaching false doctrine, um, subverting the gospel, causing spiritual harm to their listeners, whether you may show them the true gospel, either by bringing someone into their life providentially, Father, bringing great conviction to their heart, which may lead to repentance. We pray, Lord, that. You may convert the hearts of those false pastors and false preachers false prophets convert their hearts Lord to a saving faith in Jesus Christ in the true Christ that they may preach a true gospel give them the courage to do that father when you convict their consciences of what they're doing. The father now we come up to the ministry of the word in Nehemiah the seventh chapter as we look at. The servant's convictions. Look at what convictions Nehemiah had and what convictions that we should have as believers as we live in this world. Help us see, Lord, that convictions matter, that we live by them, and that you may order our convictions to be right before you in the face of this culture. We need men of conviction. We need women of conviction. We need children of biblical conviction. We need believers everywhere, Father, to live with conviction. Bless our time in your word, Father. Send your spirit to illuminate the passage to us that we're going to read this morning. Show us your truth, Lord. Give us conviction. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. May the Lord answer that prayer. All right, let us turn to Nehemiah, the seventh chapter. We just have one slide. I'm not going to show anything else. This morning, we're going to look at the servant's convictions. The servant's conviction. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to. Read the first few verses and get our observations of the, the text. So if everyone has the Bibles, it says as follows. The wall had been built, and remember this is after, uh, chapter six, where the wall was finished in 52 days, as it said in six and uh, 15. So the work continues. So it says here: When the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And when they are still standing, God, let them shut up and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up uh, at the first. The people, and I'm sorry, and I found written in it, and then it lists the names. Those who came up out of the captivity in verse 6 from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried to exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came to Zerubbabel, Jeshua. Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehomini, Mordecai, Bilsham, Big Bigvi, Nahum, and Bana. Then it gives the numbers of the men of uh, each of the sons of, and it gives a total number beginning, I think this is at uh, verse 8, the end of verse 8, beginning of verse 9. It talks about the people. And then in verse 39, it talks about uh, the priest. And then in verse 43, it talks about the Levites. And then the Nethanim, the temple service in verse uh, 46, it begins talking about them. And then in verse 57, the son of Solomon's servants. And then those who came up who could not prove their fathers' houses, beginning at verse 61, they cannot prove whether they uh, belonged to Israel or not, and they were not able to partake in any of the rituals that Israel had performed. And then verse 66 gives the total. It says the whole assembly together was 42,360 people, besides male and female servants. Of whom there were 7,337. He had 245 singers, male and female. It's a nice choir. And then it talks about the horses, the mules, the camels, and the donkeys. And the heads of the father's houses. It talked about the treasury that was given. Okay, so the heads of the father's houses gave to the work because now that the wall was rebuilt and the temple was reestablished, now the work needed to be done. So people had to give to uh, this work and talk about how much everybody gave then verse 73 says the priests, the Levites the gatekeepers the singers some of the people the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns and when the seventh month had come the people of Israel were in their towns so people begin to sell at the beginning of this passage we saw where People had not settled, but once Nehemiah orchestrated everything, then uh, people were settled. So the name of this sermon this morning is The Servant's Convictions. What is a conviction? What does it mean to have conviction? A conviction is a belief that is deeply held. A belief that is deeply held. Conviction means to have certainty. It is a belief. It is an opinion. It is a view. It is a thought. It is a persuasion. It is an idea. It is a position. It is a stance that a person strongly holds to. You may hear about people being described as having uh, religious convictions or deeply held religious convictions. So we're looking at the word conviction in context of this passage and in the context of us as people of God. Everyone has convictions about something, just like we talked about this past Wednesday night as we begin our biblical uh, worldview uh, sermon series that everyone has a worldview everyone has a lens through which they view the world the same can be said of conviction everyone has convictions about something now convictions do not always have to be positively held you can have negative convictions. Okay. An example can be. A person may have a strong conviction that. It is nothing wrong with getting drunk. As long as you do it. In your home and nobody else. You know you're not, you're not going out. Drinking and driving. It's, go- it's okay to sit at home and, and, just, and just drink yourself. You know. into drunkenness. As long as you don't. Go anywhere, as long as you're not harming anyone. That's a conviction. There is nothing wrong with it. That is a deeply held belief. I remember when I was a school teacher uh, about 15 years ago, I remember students telling me, uh, some students, it was a few of them, telling me that their parents had no problem with them, like, smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol as long as they did it around them you know, as long as the parents saw them doing it, then they were okay with that. That's, that's a conviction that, that that parent may have that's not a good conviction. Okay? That's conviction in a negative way. Okay? So convictions can be both positive and negatively held. They have good consequences or they can have bad outcomes, but they can still be a conviction. So just think about something that's, that's deeply held, something that's sincerely held. As believers, our convictions should always come from and draw from the word of God, whatever they may be. I have a strong conviction that murdering babies is a sin because it is it's murder, but th- uh, that abortion is murder That's a conviction that I have because you're murdering a, a baby, an innocent person inside of your body that's a deeply held religious uh, biblical belief that I have that's a strong conviction that I have and I and I defend the life of the unborn I have a strong conviction that um, a man and a woman that get together and have a child should be married because that's what scripture prescribes. Some people have a strong conviction that it's okay to live with somebody without being married. You know my old folks used to call it shacking up. Some some people have a conviction that it's nothing wrong with that. It's like it's like trying out a car going for a test drive. You know, you gotta you gotta see how it is first before you get married. You know, it's like trying on a pair of pants at the store. Some people have that conviction that it's okay to do that. But that's a wrong conviction because it's not biblical. So we as believers have to have the right kind of conviction. And in this passage today, we see Nehemiah's conviction. The wall uh, has been completed. So the outline of this passage is as follows. You know, the first five verses he organizes uh, for the assembling of worship. Then it lists the people who came in verses 6 through 60. And then it talks about those who came who could not be properly identified in verses 61 through 64. And then the last uh, eight verses, verses 65 through 72, uh, it's instructions on and examples of faithfulness that uh, we see. So just by observation here, before we get into our principles, we see first... That after the wall is finished, what does Nehemiah do? He gets down to business. He gets down to the business of organizing the people. We see his convictions uh, of the worship of God beginning to take place. It's not okay. The wall is finished. Let me kind of sit down. I'm sure they probably rested a little bit, you know. But let me just sit down and, you know, just not do anything for a while, okay? Okay. We, we, we rebuilt the wall. Let's kind of chill. No, Nehemiah, he did what? He sprung into action and we begin to see his convictions come into play. So I have a few principles here that I want to look at. The first principle is that the servant's conviction is that worship matters to God. Worship matters to God. Where do we see this at? Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been what? Appointed. So the first thing he did was to appoint people for the service of worship. The gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were a typical grouping of worship officials. These were the people who were to help to assist in and facilitate worship of God. Guarding the walls was a act of worship. Okay, guarding the city was ultimately related to establishing the worship of God in his temple. So the first priority Nehemiah had was worship. We need to get men in place. To establish worship. These people had specific. Responsibilities. Nehemiah was concerned about the. Spiritual development of. His. Of, of, uh, of God's people. So worship was a. Priority it mattered. To God. So it mattered to Nehemiah. Anything that matters to God. Should matter to us. Worship matters to God. And guess what? It should matter to us. Now, what do we mean by worship? What is worship? Worship is to exalt in, to glorify, and to live to God. To exalt in, in God, it means to glory in God, to, to praise God for His work for who he is. That is what worship looks like. We glorify God in everything that we do. When we come to church. We're worshiping God. We are performing acts of worship. Every single thing we do in church publicly. Church is public worship of God. Worship is just not the singing, as a lot of churches emphasize. Churches that we used to be part of, you know, oh, we just got finished worshiping God. No, all of public worship in church is worshiping God. From the announcements to the reading of the uh, call to worship scripture to the prayer of confession to the assurance of forgiveness, to reading catechism, to the responsive reading, to the singing of of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to the responsive reading, responding to God's uh, grace, to the pastoral prayer. Prayer is an act of worship, to the preaching of the word. Preaching is an act of worship. I'm worshiping God as I'm preaching. And guess what? You're worshiping God as you're listening to the gospel being proclaimed. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So listening to the gospel being preached is an act of worship. That's why corporate worship is so important. Fellowshiping with the saints. Encouraging the saints. Praying for the saints. That is an act, those are acts of worship. The doxology, the the final blessing, the fellowship meals that we have, all of those are worship acts to God. Going to work, we talked about that. Work is worship, school children is worship. You're worshiping God at school. You're to steward your time to God's glory while you're at school you to steward your friendships. Who are you friends with? That's an act of worship. Do your friend circle show that you worship God? Adults, do our friend circles uh, demonstrate that we worship God, that we care about the glory of God's name with who we choose to associate ourselves with? That is an act of worship. When we go on our jobs, are we working in a way that brings glory to God so people can commend us for our Faithfulness and our dependability and our good Christian work ethic, all of that is what? It's worship. And all of that matters to God because all of it is to be done to God's glory. So after this wall is built, Nehemiah's convictions, we have to get worship straight. We have to get the worship of God right. As a church, I've said this before, Over, we haven't had to do it as much recently as early on. We have to course correct. You know, when we first planted our church, we were doing some uh, things, some uh, acts of worship in, in, in our public worship that was unbiblical, singing some songs that were, uh, you know, not theologically sound and, and, and by God's grace. We were able to correct that course. Why? Because if worshiping God is important to him. It should be important to me. It should be important to our church. We want to sing songs that are rich in biblical theology and biblical truth. We want to preach sermons that are going to lead people to Christ and to the cross and to the gospel. And not to self-worship and self-glory. But. To our wonder in the glories of Christ. We want to love and serve each other as the church is supposed to do. Fellowship with one another, encourage one another, praying for one another. We had to do a lot of correction, but by God's grace, we were able to do that. And that is what we have to do when we examine our own lives. Okay, how does worship of God look in my life? Christ himself was concerned about how God was to be worshipped. If you look at John, the fourth chapter, you all probably know the story about Jesus at the well with the Samaritan uh, woman. And he had a gospel conversation with her about what it meant to worship God. Because Jews and Samaritans did not uh, worship God together. Because after the kingdom was split, that northern uh, kingdom was taken away and they were intermixed and they became uh, Samaritans and Samaritans and Jews did not get along. In fact, when Jews travel from north to south, they travel around Samaria as opposed as opposed to through Samaria. But that's how much they despise each other. So John, the fourth chapter here, we see what Jesus says about worship. And this is how it begins. I'm going to read it in brief. They were going to the well to get water. And it says, verse 7, John 4, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John said, parenthetically. Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He was talking spiritually here. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him would never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I would not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers, she's talking about the Samaritans, worship on this mountain, but you said that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is come from the jews but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father seeking such people to worship him God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him I know that Messiah is coming he who is called Christ when he comes he will tell us these things Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he. Now we're talking about worship here as far as his convictions are concerned and we're looking at it through uh, Christ. So worship. Jesus talked about this with her. He says God is looking for what kind of worshipers? True worshipers. And what is a true worshiper? One who worships him in spirit and in truth. Okay. Okay. And what that means is when it says in spirit, that means worship him according to the means of the Holy Spirit. OK, what that means is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, guides our worship of God. He teaches us how to worship God because that is one of the offices of the spirit. Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that I will send the comforter. Okay, and what is he going to do? He's going to teach you all things concerning me. So we worship God in spirit, We worship him according to the Holy Spirit's leading, the Holy Spirit's guidance, the Holy Spirit revealing Christ to us. And the Holy Spirit would never lead us to worship Christ in a ungodly way. And then he says, In spirit and truth, the truth is the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. The truth as it has been revealed in Scripture. We worship God according to his revealed word. That means, again, that we will worship God rightly because we're worshiping God based on his truth. What he has revealed, what he has shown us. So the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, guides us and leads us to God's truth. And as we know God's truth, guess what? We know how to worship God and we become what? True worshipers. Many people say that they are true worshipers, but they're worshiping a false God. They're worshiping a false Christ. They're not worshiping God rightly. They're worshiping God to get things from God. The prosperity preachers and the and the false preachers. These false apostles running around here. They call themselves true worshipers. No. <laughs> they are truly being worshipped by their parishioners. You Notice know, there's some churches around here where their, their pastors call themselves apostles and and the people that go to those churches, they'll say, my apostle said this or my apostle said that. My apostle. That's what they'll say. My apostle or apostle so-and-so. Apostle Monique said this or, you know, that, that's what they do. They say, my apostle. As if there's some type of, well, they are a small G God to them. But they're not leading them to worship the one true God. They're leading them to worship themselves. And that is not what God made us. For God didn't make us to be worshipped. God made us to worship. We're to worship him in spirit and truth. So looking at Nehemiah's conviction here. Worship mattered to God. So it mattered to him. Next principle here, the servant's conviction is that godly character matters to God. So looking back at this passage in Nehemiah, he called Hananiah, his brother, and Hananiah, the governor. Look at verse 2, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor, Of the castle charge over Jerusalem. Why? For he was a more faithful and God fearing man than many. Godly character matters to God. That is a conviction that Nehemiah had. He chose him because he was what? Godly. He was faithful. What does faithful mean? He was reliable, he was dependable, he was trustworthy, he could be entrusted with things, he was valuable. Friends, saints, reliability is crucial, reliability was crucial. Nehemiah was looking for leaders with integrity who would be faithful to their governor. This building work had been undertaken by people who were not easily deflected from their assignment. Remember the opposition that they encountered in the previous chapters? And what did they keep doing? They kept what? Building. They didn't stop. They didn't get distracted. No matter how tough uh, the hazards were, no matter how much they were encountered with distraction, guess what? they kept going. Why? Because they were faithful. <coughs> they were faithful. I remember um, the band director at Sachs High School, uh, you know, was talking to the students one time about, you know, practicing and everything, you know, practicing the instruments, you know, practicing. Or after school, just, just practicing. When you practice more, you sound better. And he said something that stuck with me. He, <laughs> he told a student this in, in practice one day. He says, The first step to being faithful is to be faithful. The first step to being faithful is to be faithful. Just be faithful. That is the call of the Christian. And why are we called to be faithful? Because our God is faithful. Paul told Timothy, God is faithful. Though we're faithless, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. Christ was faithful to the mission that God Had called him to. When you look at Christ's public ministry. Of three years. He encountered all types of opposition. He encountered men who wanted to kill him. For calling himself God. He had to deal with. Even his own disciples. Who had little faith. Although they saw miracles. And everything that, that he performed. He still had to contend. With them with gospel love. But yet. He was what faithful. To what God had called him to do, and that was to accomplish our salvation. On the cross. Even on the night in the garden of Gethsemane. He said uh, uh, about the cup of suffering. that He was about to drink. He didn't let that cup pass. He drank the cup of suffering. And what he tell the Lord? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Why? Because he was faithful. And because Christ was faithful, guess what? We are to be faithful to. We have an example in Christ, our Savior. Faithfulness matters in the church, it matters in leading the church. It matters in serving the church, being dependable. Faithfulness matters in areas of your life. I have to be faithful to my wife. I have to be faithful to my children. No matter how hard it gets in raising kids, guess what? I still have to be what? Faithful. My parents could have given up on me. I was a knucklehead. They could have said, forget it, I'm... I'm tired of it, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it, get out, go. Some parents do that, they give up on their kids. Husbands give up on their wives, wives give up on their husbands. In our broken fallen world that happens, unfortunately. My mom and dad were only married for 15 years. But the point I'm making is faithfulness is a Christian conviction that we all should want to have and possess and it matters to God. It matters. Godly character. Faithfulness is part of godly character. On your job or when you were working for those of us who are retired. Were you faithful? Were you dependable? Or were you always late? <laughs> you know. And you know, there are extenuating circumstances where that happens. It is. But were you consistently late? Or were you consistently on time or early? As my high school band directors tell us, to be on time is to be late, but to be early is to be on time. Are we faithful? Are we dependable? Are we trustworthy? Look, as Christians, we should be the most trustworthy, dependable people. Why? Because we serve a trustworthy and dependable God. We serve a faithful God. So when people see us, they should see I can always depend on Darrell. I can always depend on Mary. I can always depend on the Lord's. I can always depend on uh, Ruby. I can always depend on, you know, I I, I can depend on them to get the job done. I can depend on them. I can depend on Ronald to. To get there on time and to get the deal done—that's that. That's the way we should be looked at: dependable, trustworthy. Because those are godly characteristics, and that's what Nehemiah was looking for. He says, "One, faithful men." And then he says, "God-fearing." They feared God. This reminds me of uh, Exodus eighteen and twenty-one. When Moses was, was appointing people and God told him to choose men who were God-fearing. What does it mean to fear God? That is something that people say, you know, that, that women say on uh, dating sites, I want a God-fearing man. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't fear God themselves. So what do they mean when they say, y'all hear women say that sometimes? I want a God-fearing man. Yes, yeah, all the time in the movies. This is what Mo, uh, it says: moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. But God said, what kind of men? Trustworthy. Men who fear God. Fearing God flows out of knowing God. We can't fear whom we don't know. And when we're talking about fear, we're not talking about being scared of God. When we talk about God-fearing, it means someone who worships God. A God-fearing man A God-fearing woman is one who commits their life to worshiping God. They have a healthy, reverential fear of God. I tell single Christian ladies all the time, you want a God-fearing man, you have to know what it means to fear God and what it looks like. It's a man who is a worshiper of God. Not someone who... Just goes to church. You can go to church and not fear God. The church is full of tares among the wheat. The church is full of false worshipers and counterfeit Christians. I was telling uh, Melissa, I'm sure she don't mind me sharing this. I was telling her uh, uh, last Sunday, I said, Melissa, I've been praying that God sends you a godly man. A God-fearing man. A, God, a man who loves the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And who will love and serve you as his wife. That's how a God-fearing man looks. He, he, he serves his wife. That's how it looks, ladies. And men, young men, that's how it looks to have a God-fearing woman. One who loves the Lord who serves the Lord, who is a true worshiper of God. Not in word only, but in their deeds. And you can't make them that. They have to already be that. You got some who say, OK, I, I'll, you know, we'll get together and I'll start. Um, I'll make sure you start us coming to church. The only one do that with you. Chop, cut him off. But you got some who still, oh, he's a real real good guy. He really loves me. Guess what? If he loves you, he's going to worship God. If she loves you, she's going to worship God. If not, you're going to be unequally yoked and you're going to have a lifetime of misery. You're going to have one who desires to worship God, one who desires to raise your children to worship God, and then you're going to have one who doesn't. And who do you think is going to pull whom? In most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, the non worshiper is going to pull the worship. It's going to cause misery. Now, God does give grace, and He shows grace that uh, we're not justified uh, by that. But what it can do. Is when we don't fear God or when people in our life don't fear God, it's going to cause trouble. I told my son just the other day when we were talking about what drew me to Fran was the fact that she loved the Lord, that she worshiped God. All these other girls that I dated in college did not. And I was like, man. If I married of them, I would have been miserable. I thought when he'd be, I would have probably backslidden and, and, and apostatized. Because they weren't concerned about their relationship with God. They just wanted to have a good time, in their words. You know, doing worldly things, worldly pursuits. I thank God that he blessed me with my wife. I told her the other day. I thank God that he blessed me with you. Because she's a worshiper of God. She serves the Lord. And her family uh, family did. That's a conviction. Godly character matters. And not only did these men fear God. But they were watchful. He says here. And I said to them. Let uh, not the gates of Jerusalem. Be open until the sun is hot. And while they were standing God. Let them shut and bar the doors. And to appoint guards. So these men were watchful. That's watchfulness is a godly characteristic. Also, how do we know that? Matthew twenty six, when Jesus was, uh, he went off to pray. He told the disciples to, tarry with him for an hour. Uh, The King James says tarry. You know, wait here for an hour while I go and pray. And what happened when Jesus finished praying? What he came back. He saw them what sleep they will sleep and he told them these two words watch and pray that you enter not into temptation for the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak he told them to watch be be watchful be spiritually watchful be discerning watch and pray that you not enter into temptation, because your flesh is going to say no. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. First Peter five: Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion, roaring lion, roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may destroy. He said, Be watchful. Ephesians 5 15, Paul tells us to walk circumspectly. Circumspect means, circle means like in a circle. Spec means, you know, your eyes like spectacles. Always watching. Always alert. Paul's, Paul admonishes believers to walk circumspectly. To always be aware. To always be. Watchful of of evil and evil influences and evil people. He says, "Walk circumspectly redeeming the time for the days are evil. As Christians, we're called to be watchful. And so Nehemiah set these watchful men over Jerusalem. Because this had to do with worship also you have to watch the gates so the enemies of God's people would not come in and try to destroy these people again and destroy their way of worshiping God. Men, we ought to be watchful over the flock of God to make sure uh, we're the gatekeepers we have to make sure that no false teaching rises up in our church from among our members. And members, guess what? We ought to be watchful with each other to make sure that uh, none of us are promoting false teaching or false preachers or false churches. As Paul told the Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. All it takes is one false doctrine, one false belief, and the whole thread just becomes unraveled. Amen? So godly character matters God. Last principle here is people matter to God. You see this whole list of names, right? All these names. Names that we can't pronounce. These names come from uh, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I'm sorry. These are the same names that were uh, mentioned in the book of Ezra. There's some some differences there. But these people were uh, instructed to publicly identify themselves uh, by their family uh, unity. And this was a fulfillment of God's promise to make Israel a great nation. Because this established the credentials of the people of Israel. People matter to God. All these names, the sons of. This name is virtually the same as. As the one in Ezra 2. All these names matter. All these families matter. All of them. They matter to God. Because this list shows the continuation of this people. Over 40,000 of them came back and repopulated uh, Israel populated Jerusalem. These names matter to God. We may look and say, "Ah, uh, I can't pronounce those uh, Hebrew names," but that doesn't mean that they don't matter. They do matter to God. Don't let the culture dictate how we look at each other, because all these people are the genealogy of Christ, the continuation of God's people for His Messiah. Had the remnant died out, guess what? There would have been no Messiah. There would have been no genealogy of Christ had these people died out. That shows you the continuation that these people matter. Just as God put these people's names in here, it reminds me of Christ's words in John the 10th chapter uh, when he was talking about him being the great shepherd of the sheep. Christ said his sheep know his name. And that he knows all of his sheep. Christ knows all who belong to him. Just as God shows all who belong to him in this passage here in Nehemiah. Guess what? Christ knows. Now we've seen that song every now and then. He knows my name. Christ knows those who are his. He knows us by name. We may get old and have dementia or Alzheimer's and can't remember anything. Can't remember our family members. Can't remember our loved ones. Can't even remember the names of our own children. Can't even remember our own names guess what? God knows our name. That's the one that matters the most. We may forget, but God knows his sheep. And that is so much of a comfort. These names matter. These, these people matter. These, these families matter. It lists, it lists the sons of, the descendants. Sons of basically means descendants of. Then it lists the priests. It lists the Levites. It lists the servants. It lists the uh, Solomon servants. It even lists people who could not prove their Jewish heritage. All of these names. Matter. So in these names, we see women, children, we see leaders, we see families. Do y'all know that families matter to God? Even in our broken world, families matter to God. That is why the world hates families. Families are the basic building block of a civilization. If you destroy families, guess what? You destroy civilization. We live in a world now that is trying to recreate. Although they can't, they won't ultimately succeed, but they're trying to recreate what a, quote, family looks like. They say a family is two people who can't procreate, but they call them a family, two men or two women, or or a man and five women. Or three men and a baby. And they call that a family. That's not a family. A family is mother and father. Biblically. Family is a husband and wife. With children. That's a biblical family. But the world's trying to say no. Family. Family. It could can, can, it, it, it be all other types of. Definitions and meanings. But no it's not. Families matter to God. In this list, we see families. We see a continuation of a people. Why? Because families had to do what? They had to have children. They had to raise children, and those children had children. That shows us that families matter to God under this uh, general principle that people matter to God. Do y'all know that 90% and this is as of 2015 it's probably higher now. About 90% of prisoners people in prison come from single parent led homes. That do not mean that 90% of kids from a single parent home go to prison. It means that over 90% of people in prison come from single parent led homes why it's a breakdown of the family the family structure that God himself ordained when he created Adam and he made Eve out Adam and he said a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh and then he gave them the mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth once they got married you have kids now there are cases where some women are infertile that's different but the mandate still stands to get married and have babies. Not be like Nick Cannon to have eight different kids. By eight different baby mamas. I don't know if y'all know who Nick Cannon is. He's a, a, a celebrity rapper, entertainer, whatever. If you watch a show called The Masked Singer, he, he hosts that show. He just, uh, you know, about to have his eighth kid. He's not even married. The neither of his baby mamas. And that's what they are. That's sad. They're they're baby mothers. They're not married. Eight kids by eight different women. Well, I'm sorry. He had twins with Mariah Carey. So uh, eight kids by seven different women. That's not being fruitful and multiplying. That's not what God had in mind. Those kids are going to grow up. Yes, he's got the financial means to take care of them. He's he's a wealthy young man, but money is not all of it. You can't say, I got all these kids, give them some child support money, and they'll be good. They can go out and buy all the the, the $200 uh, Jordans that they they want. They can wear the best clothes. You can buy them a a nice car and all that stuff. That's not what they need. They need a mother and a father in the home. They need mom and dad. They don't need weekend visitations. They need mom and dad in the home, married, in covenant with each other. That is the family that God builds. That is the family that we see here in this passage. And that is what matters most to God. Families matter. And we see that with the continuation of this people. It matters. Women, we see women listening here in verse 67. They matter to God. They were among the singers. We see men, of course, they matter to God. these people had children guess what they matter to God also all those descendants the sons of the sons of the sons of all of those are descendants they all matter to God and that was Nehemiah's conviction so as we get ready to close out here there are a lot more convictions that I could point out but uh, I will not but just these main three I wanted to to point out. That worship matters to God, godly character matters to God, and that people matter to God, as we see in this passage. All of these things are convictions that we should have as Christians. We see Nehemiah have these convictions. We see Christ have these convictions also. And we should have these convictions too. So my only application that I have, I don't have listed here, but the one main takeaway as we go through the day and the week and as you consider your life, the main thing I want you all to keep in mind as believers is be committed to living your life with, biblical convictions let your convictions be rooted in the word your convictions about everything let them be rooted in the truth of God's word that's where we ought to get them from the word of God amen amen let us pray as we close Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp and it is a light. Lord, help us as believers to live with conviction. To live with biblical conviction. Help us, Lord, to have biblical convictions about everything pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, help us to proclaim your truth, to not be ashamed to let people know about our convictions. As a church, as individuals, May we live by our convictions. May we not be swayed from our convictions. But Lord, may we know what we believe and why we believe it and be convinced of it by means of your word, by means of your truth. Help us to be like Christ, who was committed to doing your will in this world to doing what you call him to do to being committed and to being faithful to his cause and Lord may we be committed and faithful to what you have called us to do help us father help us help us help us in Christ's name I pray amen